All right. Good evening, everyone. We are uh, doing some different technology here tonight, so um, hopefully it'll all run smooth and seamless. If it doesn't, though, just bear with us. We'll have it uh, together here shortly. We're going to be jumping back into 1 Corinthians, although we may we may take a small field trip. If this is your first time here um, or your first time joining us online, you'll find the subject matter interesting, but maybe odd, <laughs> because Paul is dealing with a very specific set of circumstances in regard to sexual immorality in first century Corinth. And of course, the applications for us today are, are very important. They're going to be very counterculture, the countercultural, excuse me, counterintuitive and uh, indeed strange to our American way of looking at things. So we'll jump back into seven. I know we covered a part of seven last week. We'll do a little bit more work on it um, here tonight and just see how far we get. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, may we grant the wisdom from you that we seek. May we have our consciences stilled and set right by the blood and righteousness of your Son given freely for us. May we have our hearts and minds enlightened by your Holy Spirit. May we have the sinful flesh and the sinful indoctrination with which the world has afflicted us, crucified and drowned that it may no more have sway or dominion over our hearts. May we be fearless to follow you in your word, uh, despite all the weaseling and plaintive pleading of our sinful flesh within. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. So at chapter 7, of course, um, you know, all of this flows together. In many respects, it can be a distorting exercise to study the scriptures in depth because you lose the so busy looking at the trees you lose the forest so it would be good to just redirect your attention once more to the highlights of the end of chapter six the body is not meant for sexual immorality but for the lord and the lord for the body your bodies are members of christ so this all goes very counter um ancient Greek way of thinking, but even modern American way of thinking. So consider, for example, people will, will say, oh, when I'm dead, I don't care what happens to my body. In, incinerate it and, you know, throw it in a, a trash heap for all I care. Feed the fish with it for all I care, whatever. That's the idea that your body just has no value and you're not your body. Uh, that's completely contrary and alien to a biblical theology of the body. And of course, uh, Oh, I don't know. I'm getting a little feedback. Is that anything I'm doing, David? Uh, no. Okay, thanks. Very good. Sorry about that. Anyway, the, the biblical uh, theology of the body is vastly different than that of uh, the world, and that in, that's the ancient Greek world, the modern American world. We view the body very differently on account of the scriptures. So... Um, Whereas, and it is fascinating here, whereas the body is not meant for sexual immorality, like I'm looking at verse 13 again, one would anticipate that Paul would say, therefore, the body is meant for the spouse. But that's not what he says, because the body for the spouse is of this age only. The body for the Lord and the Lord for the body is the eternal reality and the ultimate consummation of what it means to be in human flesh. Okay, your bodies are members of Christ. That makes sexual immorality unthinkable because, and we are, you know, as evil and as systemic and as wicked and as uh, toxic as pornography is, it's just not what's in view here in this section. What's in view is the bodily connection, the one flesh union with another. So thus, Paul will say, your bodies are the members of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Uh, so that one flesh violation of the body, um, to say, uh, uniting the body with another person's is on a different level of just ontology, being, essence, the act itself. Okay, and then 
he continues down at 17. I'm just hitting the high points here to remind ourselves of this theology that Paul has laid out already. He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So not only is the body ultimately for the Lord, but the spirit is for the Lord also. And our earthly marriages, I mean, this is where we're going to go in in chapter 7. We could just as easily point to Ephesians 5. Our earthly marriages are reflecting a deeper reality, a more ancient reality, and a future reality, and that is the marriage of Christ and his church. So that means that our our earthly marriages are going to be uh, inferior and of temporary nature relative to the kind of heavenly marriage, the joining of the body, the joining of the spirit with Christ. Okay, and of course, then we've got this uh, difficult to explain line in 19, or do you not know that your body is a, that's not the difficult one, the difficult ones immediately prior. Uh, Flee 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Um, Or in the language of uh, Romans, like receives within himself the due penalty. So this is talking about one flesh union. Again, this just this doesn't make sense in regard to pornography, let's say. Um, What is going on when you unite yourself to another body is you're becoming one flesh as a man unites himself with a woman, you're becoming one flesh that um, is an is a kind of sin that can't be replicated because you can say that, um, you know, what drunkenness and gluttony affect the body. Um, murderer is using your body to harm the body of another, but this is unique in that the two become one flesh through this sin. That seems to be what Paul's highlighting here, even though it is a difficult verse to discern. Okay, we have this repetition of your body as a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. That's a pretty monergistic little phrase, isn't it? Whom you have from God. Nobody can just conjure up the Holy Spirit within him. (laughs) So the Holy Spirit has been given as a gift. Remember that line of scripture, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And no one can just say, you know what, Uh, I'm an unbeliever, but today I think I'd like to have the Holy Spirit within me. Who told you who the Holy Spirit is? (laughs) So you see, faith always comes by hearing. Receiving of the Holy Spirit is always a gift from God. And since no one can say that Jesus is Lord except through the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's a gift, then this faith and confession is likewise a gift. So we can gather all that even from this uh, little clause, the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. So glorify God in your body. And this is going to be something that Paul repeats because he's going to say whatever your station in life is, or whatever God has divided or apportioned unto you, the main thing is that you belong to the Lord. And that's, um, this is as good a place as any, although you could go to, again, Ephesians or any of the household code texts that describe those three fundamental vocations of God, um, the three pairs, rather, six different vocations, husband and wife, that's the first pair, parents and children, that's the second pair, masters and slaves, that's the third pair, All of these are to be rendered as service unto God. So if you're a husband, you say, well, I would be a better husband to my wife, but she doesn't deserve it. You've got your head on upside down. Whether your wife deserves it or not is completely irrespective of the fact that God has given you a duty to do. You You are responsible to him. You report to him, not to your wife. And in that respect, the wife, too, if she grumbles against her husband and says, you know, maybe I'd do more for him if he would do more for me. She wants to put her husband on that treadmill where he never quite manages to get the carrot because it's always receding. Uh, then she, she, too, needs to come to a repentance and understand that she's not merely cheating her husband. She's cheating the Lord who has given her this wifely duty to do. She reports likewise to the Lord. So that's true for masters and slaves. It's true for parents and children. 
and so on and so forth. We are, of course, essential to the fourth commandment is that we respect our parents, um, even when they're not respectable, because they have the office of the Lord. They are the ones the Lord has given us and through whom uh, the Lord acts in order to care for us, so on and so forth. So this is a this is just an essential principle that we recognize that we are not our own. We are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Our accountability through all our vocations is to God and God alone. All right, shall we go on then a little further? And I, I know we've hit this. Yeah, yes, sir. One is you made a statement making and mm-hmm. as you say, but they talk sure. before you hear them, I'm a Christian, or 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 i um, but you can say Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit. And many do say that without the Holy Spirit and without a true or genuine faith. Um, they, In most instances, they have a Jesus of their own imagination, and they're frankly horrified by the Jesus of the scriptures. Yeah. So we have to clarify that. And then you made another statement on the body. Mm-hmm. Um, when it did... Um, we don't have anything to do with your body. So if it turns into fish food. Uh, mm, yeah. So I, what I was just trying to illustrate, maybe I did poorly, is this kind of despising of the body that's in our culture. And this idea that I am not my body and my body's not important um, and I'll never be in my body again. I'm free from this prison, that kind of idea. And you'll see some, um, if you have to go to uh a number of, of funerals, you'll see this kind of thing crop up in the poetry of uh, unbelievers' funerals, or even sometimes believers who are sadly taken in by this kind of false theology. Um, I don't, there's one, and I can't remember how it goes. You'll you'll look for me, and I won't be there. I'll be in the air, in the trees, in the... Yeah. What? <laughs> and that, that means... Uh, yeah, I just, I just beggars the imagination how impoverished uh, the pagan world is, and then and then Christians don't know better, and so they get sucked into all this stuff. So the body is valuable, um, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. He has knit us together in our mother's wombs, and so yeah, I understand that in a fallen world, um, we can be vaporized by missiles. We can and fall overboard on a cruise ship and become shark poop. I understand that these things can happen, uh, but that doesn't mean that, w- therefore, we should disrespect the body and treat the body shamefully and viewed as a prison that we should escape from. We should recognize that the body was created by God with dignity. Jesus doesn't just take the body like, oh, well, I got to do this disgusting thing. I'm going to put on the body I'm going to make atonement for human beings. And the second that's over, I'm never taking up that filthy pair of boots again. That's not what Jesus does. He's raised in his body. And it's not a different body. He shows himself to his disciples in a body glorified and yet bearing the marks of his crucifixion, the nail marks in his hands, the spear mark in his side. This all gives a great dignity and wonder to the body. And we should recognize that I mean, I think if we truly understood the body as as the temple of the Holy Spirit, if we truly understood the body as what it is, we'd have a hard time functioning in life because such holiness and such honor and such glory has been bestowed upon us, that we would be created in the image of God. And some of the history of the church have taken that quite literally, that like, what does God look like? Basically, you, you look like a physical version of God. Um, that 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 image and likeness of God is sometimes read in the history of the church very literally. Be that as it may, one thing is certain, we'll inherit the new heavens and the new earth in our bodies. Bodies are good. They're to be honored. They're to be cherished. They're gifts from God. And God loves them so much, he's going to have us in bodies glorified for all eternity. Pastor, I have a question. Um, does this make 
uh, the sacraments more relevant to us when Christ says, take, take, eat, this is my body given to you, and this is my blood, that it, 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 uh, it elevates our body position. Does it have any correlation? That's what I'm asking. Yeah, it absolutely does. We're we're slowly crawling our way toward 1 Corinthians 10 and then, of course, 11. We'll get to meditate on this right from the pen of St. Paul. Um, we become members of one another and members of Christ by partaking in in the body of Christ. You know, again, just strictly speaking, it's not like Paul's sitting around on some grass hill, you know, uh, knitting a tent and thinking to himself, now, what's an analogy that I could use? Okay, well, the body's got these different parts. Oh, okay, that's that's like that's like Christ and Christians. You know, there's a body, and that, that's not how that's not how Paul does theology. If you if you read Paul, he's never just doing this kind of thing. So, um, what is he getting at? When you partake of the body of Christ, you are what you eat. Now, there's this beauty, and okay, so. Anything you eat that's that is lower than you, it becomes you, or else it's excreted. So it becomes you. But if there is food that is higher than you, you become it. And there is only one food that is higher than you, and that food is the body of Christ. Um, the blood is is even more easily proved um, biblically because there's a blood prohibition throughout the scriptures. It even um, precedes uh, Leviticus, and but it's it's made law in Leviticus, ceremonial law, and that is you cannot consume the blood. The rationale is always given that the life is in the blood, and the pagans all, and by the way, some of them still do. So while we're while we're kind of getting squeamish about about various aspects of war, there are actually warriors out there, present tense, drinking the blood of their enemies, just like the good old days. So this is a very common pagan thing, the idea that when you drink the blood of an animal, you receive its life force. You're receiving its life as your own life, its powers and abilities as your own powers and abilities. And there are uh, countless rites and rituals in this regard throughout the history of humanity. Well, one of the reasons why God wanted his people to be, or ways in which he wanted his people to be distinct was to not drink blood. So the blood is all drained from the animals. There's the blood prohibition. This goes all the way through. Even the Passover lamb has to be drained of its blood. No blood. Why? The life is in the blood. And all of this peaks and climaxes when Christ says on the night of the Passover, where everyone knows you're not supposed to drink the blood, he says, take drink, this is my blood. And they're going, no, we, we can't do that. The life is, oh. So his life is our life. His body is our body. We are made one in that sacrament. It is the sacrament of our oneness. It is the new covenant the new testament in his blood okay so now you now you see how important that is for this theology and and it's where it's not in the abstract i mean where do we where do we become one body with him when our bodies receive his body so too we become one spirit with him we have communion with him a holy communion with him a holy oneness with him and that's what's going on as we're going to see in in um First Corinthians 11, that's also the basis for, you know, sometimes called closed communion, but it's just the realization that like, if you don't know what's going on here, then you're not yet ready. Right. And, and we're going to see a warning from the Lord that people who commune when they're not yet ready, it actually can harm them physically. They can become weak, sick, and some have even fallen asleep, which is Paul's euphemism for dying. It's one of the many reasons why we, I mean, you are basically, when you commune, you are coming in contact with Christ. What's higher, do you think, going into the holiest of holies where God abides or becoming one with the God who abides there? We have a meal of which those who serve in the tent are not worthy to eat. That's the language of Hebrews. So much holier is what we have in holy communion than the old holy place, that those who eat in the old holy place have no right to eat with us. That's a, that high, that much higher. That's the teaching of Hebrews. 
So when we go to the Lord's Supper, then it's like, yeah, if people don't understand that that's what it is, and just as if you went into the holy place at the wrong time, you could die. Paul's going to say you commune without realizing what it is you're doing and you can die. You are entering the holy place, whether you believe it or not. You may in your head be like, well, I just think it's symbolic. So therefore, it's symbolic for me. Right. Of course, that's how all of life works. I believe that that city bus is a marshmallow. And so I can walk right in front of it. The reality doesn't care about your subjective error. And that's the same thing is absolutely true when Christ the Almighty says, this is my body, this is my blood. He doesn't care if you're like, well, I think not. Uh, no, you're going to get hit by the proverbial bus. You're going to go into the into the holiest of holies without um, recognizing what's there. So that's what's at stake. And that's the that's the biblical basis and the basis of, of the practice of closed communion then. Um, that has been alive and well in the church for 2,000 years. And by the way, it's alive and well in Roman Catholicism, or should be, at least on paper it is. It's alive and well in uh, historic Lutheranism, or at least should be. Um, and then likewise, uh, Eastern Orthodoxy. It's really only in our American milieu where this has gotten skewed. And why has it gotten skewed? It's gotten skewed by the very people that don't believe it's Christ's body and blood. They just believe it's symbolic. So then if it's symbolic, everybody can come. And now they point to us and Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox as the weirdos. But friends, globally, in terms of percentage, they're the ones that, and of course, historically, they're the ones that it just makes no sense what they're doing. They're denying the exact words of Christ. And, and not all of them are doing it maliciously, but I'm here more venting against the teachers who ought to know better. But in in saying it's not the body and blood of Christ, um, then they next open the door to, well, then everyone can have the picnic. And then, of course, it's like, well, if everyone can have the picnic, why not have it on your own terms? And, of course, there are many churches that do just that. The Lord's Supper will be in the, the Lord's Supper will be celebrated quarterly. It'll be in the corner of the worship event center. And you can go take it anytime you feel like it or not. And you may or may not find that it's graham crackers and grape soda because it doesn't matter as long as you remember Jesus. And as like abominable and crazy as that sounds, it's just taking it all to its logical conclusion. If the main thing in the sacrament is just you remembering Jesus, you don't need bread and wine to do that. You use anything. Okay, so you're seeing where this all going then. And, and of course, then you can see how this is... Um, the same thing could be true with baptism. I don't want to do that because we'll just be done with our class. But, you know, baptism is baptism is a pouring of water over the body. It's a claiming of the body. Paul says that you have been buried with Christ through baptism. This is a crazy thing. It's a thing only God can do. Like, if you think baptism is your act of obedience, as most of modern America, I mean, just like they think that the Lord's Supper is you doing all the remembering. Baptism is you doing all the obeying. And then, like, God's supposed to say, hey, you know. Thank you. (laughs) Hey, Lord, I got baptized. You're welcome. No. Uh, So in baptism, you, Paul says in Romans 6, are being buried with Christ. You've been so united with him that you've been buried into his tomb. Now, that's bodily language. It means in a way that we can't understand. When Christ's body was placed into that tomb, our body has now joined his body there. And and Paul goes on to make the argument that when Christ was raised from the tomb, now since we have been joined with him, our spirits, our souls are already resurrected with him, and the body is going to follow. But the rationale of Romans 6 is that since our spirits have already been raised with him, we should walk in newness of life. We should walk as though we were already resurrected from the dead. That's the... so. Think of how visceral and how bodily the sacrament of holy baptism is, that you are so united with Christ that his death is your death. His resurrection is your resurrection. At this level, there's no ontic separation. You've been made one with him. You've been united with him. Okay, maybe enough on that. Pastor Pastor, uh, Rodi? Yes, sir. I'm sorry. I can't resist asking this question, but uh, can can you tie in... um, the marks of the church and heterodoxy and how we're supposed to look at this 
in light of those things that you're talking about? Hmm. Well, that sounds like a detailed question. Can you make it a little more simple for my simple mind? Well, uh, we have the marks of the church that the gospel is purely preached and the sacraments are rightly administered. Okay, so so those are the two marks of the church. Luther has seven marks of the church, and I was praying you weren't going to have me try to recite. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Good. Okay, so the, the word rightly preached and the sacraments rightly administered there, there is the church, or there is Christ. Is that right? Right. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. So, um, then, did you want you want further commentary on that, or was that um, tied into another well, idea? Well, you know, when I go to a, a church where they don't have communion, or they just you know they don't have the proper understanding of communion, I'm almost like, well, am I? I'm not at church, really. And so that's a heterodox church, I'm guessing. But how do we, I mean, I have trouble looking at other churches sometimes. I know there's Christians there. And yet, if they're not believing this core doctrine, they're just not, I don't know. I I had trouble thinking about it, you know, how to think about it. Yeah, yeah, and I and it would it would probably take me twenty minutes to do a thorough and <laughs> okay. I'm gonna do a terrible. Sorry. Job. All right, uh, the terrible job is shorthand like this. So, from on one side of the coin, uh, the marks of the church are objective and external. That is to say, wherever the gospel is rightly preached or the word is rightly preached, the sacraments are rightly administered. There is the church. That's supposed to help you when you're looking for a church. That's the external marks. Now, the other side of that coin is an internal reality, and that is wherever believers are, there is the church. Okay. Now, that's a hidden reality because we can't peer into hearts and look into hearts and know where genuine faith is. But those are two sides of the same theological coin. All right. How can that help us? I think that where we look at other denominations, we ought to give thanks to God wherever the word of God is taught purely. And wherever there are true Christians or reason to believe there are true Christians, we give thanks to God. We recognize them as our brothers in Christ. We try, especially with the laity, to be charitable. With pastors, we can be a little harsher because they're held to a higher judgment in this life and in that which is to come. That's simply taught in the scriptures. And that has been the long trajectory. Uh, Luther, I can't think of a single time where Luther is harsh on Roman Catholic laity for being Roman Catholic. Maybe he said it, who knows, but I can't think of a single time. I could probably go to any collection of Luther's sermons, open at random, and have a sermon where he blasts the papacy. <laughs> so we we should direct our our um you know our our godly aggression toward false teachers and say, hey, you should repent of this and you should teach your people rightly. We can be a little more stern and strict with them. Whereas people who are who are good Christians who don't know better or um, who believe very piously but haven't been taught these things, um, we should just be absolutely gentle and absolutely charitable and 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 just give thanks to God for what he has given them. And be prepared to say, hey, give a defense for the hope that is within you. Hey, I I think you're missing out on one of the chief gifts of our Lord. Or I think you've been taught to see this in a way that's that's clouding the true brightness, the true glory of God's gift from your eyes. And I'd like to work through that with you. And then try to do so humbly and charitably. I I think that's the best approach. Yeah. So like I said, that's going to be too short and probably done poorly. But it's my stab at it. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. Um, okay. yes. uh, I got just a quick observation, but right. as uh, in the and tied into what Brad was saying, um, I I grew up in the church in an evangelical church, and uh, I love the Lord Jesus. I've been desiring to follow Him all my life. But here's where I th- I think I can tie in with what Brad is saying. I was ignorant. We always talk about going deeper in Christ, and and I never could grasp that. So it's like I had to work harder to do more. And so then in the last few years with Chris, coming to the Lutheran church there, 
And then following and reading up on Luther's small catechism and, and even more Lutheran teaching, um, it's nothing, it's not new. It's take just the fact, the fact that I'm following uh, the more, more in line of what church is supposed to be about is taking me deeper, what I sought all along, and it's not of my own strength. If that makes any sense. Yeah, it absolutely does. You know, and I made a remark to this effect. I've been thinking about this. Uh, I made a remark to this effect in the Sunday Bible class on Proverbs as well. And especially it's worthwhile noting this as we come up on the observation of the Reformation this this next Sunday. I, I don't I don't know if it's just sort of our own simplicity or if it's media that does this to us, but it's like it's like we got this idea that Luther was walking toward um, that door with a with a hammer in his hand, and by the time he had nailed the ninety five theses into the door, he had instantaneously been freed from all error, and he just arrived. If you look at Luther, the course of Luther's life is overcoming one error after another. Even after Luther himself personally, quote unquote, discovers the gospel, and he gives us actually a couple somewhat conflicting accounts of this, which I love. (laughs) There's one from when he's younger and there's one from when he's older and they don't quite line up. He gets this, he, he gets so passionate about the gospel and its relative absence in the medieval church. He just thinks the gospel's gonna solve everything. So he's like, let's just preach the gospel. And, and at times he is even a little bit like, hey, no law, just the gospel. The gospel's going to do everything. The gospel's going to straighten everything out. And so he does this for a number of years. And then he goes around on the visitations. And here's where the preface of the small catechism is written and the small and, and is the impetus for the catechisms to be written because he realizes that all people are doing is taking the gospel. If you don't have to do anything in in order to earn heaven and they're going, okay, I don't have to do anything. <laughs> and so this infuriates him and it infuriates him toward, again, the pastors at one point in time, he says, if they won't teach people the 10 commandments and the creed and the, our father, they should be driven out of town and pelted with dung. <laughs> so it's great. It's great fun. And you see his antagonism again towards teachers who should know better. So there, there is, uh, by the way, if you look at the 95 theses, I, I don't know. I'm just throwing this number out to be silly. Probably 85 of them are wrong. 85 of them, Luther will later. Uh, there's a huge portion of the 95 theses that are completely still medieval Romish and, and Popish. Um, they're not this, if, if you go look at them, they're not this grandiose document, document of theological purity. As you look at the course of Luther's life, he is his theology gets refined over the course of his life, and he overcomes this wrong emphasis or that or this false teaching or the other. And I think that it's it's important to point that out for someone so great as Luther. I mean, Augustine famously is the same way. When he's against the Manichaeans, he's totally free will. Then Pelagius comes along, and he's like. Oh boy, I have heard. Because <laughs> Pelagius is like free will yourself right into heaven. So if if great men like Augustine and Luther, I mean to name two of any dozen I could name probably, uh, we should look at our lives as ones of continual reform, of continually overcoming misunderstanding, of continual theological purity. And there's no shame in that. I, I even recount my own life as a as a cradle Lutheran. Uh, and the son of a, an LCMS pastor. And I've lost track of how many errors that I, I've like, you know, okay, well, yeah, I once held that. And I recognize that that's not genuine Lutheranism or that's not right from the scriptures, which is to be redundant. So I think that we have to embrace that. And when we see that in others, that's great. And we can see times of continuity and discontinuity, like, hey, the church I was in, uh, prepared me wonderfully up to a point, but they didn't have anything to say about X, Y, or Z. And now that I've learned that, I feel like I have more fullness, a fuller picture. That's continuity. Discontinuity is well, what I was taught was a bunch of crap and or uh, complete negligence on the part of pastors that should have taught me these things and didn't teach me these things. 
thank God I have a clearer view now. That's discontinuity. And again, it just autobiographically, I recognize both in me. So you probably recognize both in you. And in truth, there's probably both in the other people you're going to meet. So all that to say, you know, again, shorthand to be charitable towards folks and realize that holding certain theological errors, you've been there, I've been there, Luther's been there, Augustine's been there, Peter's been there, <laughs> Paul maybe too, but he's never, he'll never admit it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. Anytime you hear someone say that God is you put it so succinctly and so eloquently i won't be able to restate it but for those of you online who did, were they did they hear it due to our new technology okay anyway yeah the comment was um, just this golden thread of the body and all three of the articles of the creed, you know, the bo- that God is the one who created the body. God is the one who came into our body in the person of his son and redeemed our bodies, raised us in our bodies. And the Holy Spirit is the one who draws us together in our bodies into the Holy Christian Church. And of course, we'll draw our bodies together to be uh, one with the Lord in the new heavens and the new earth. So any theology that denigrates the body or denigrates material is suspect. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I knew I couldn't say this fast. <laughs> Succinct and eloquent. Okay, anything else we want to talk about? I know we're on a tangent here, but yes, please. Maybe, uh, maybe not a short answer. It's in chapter 15 of our book we're starting I think Paul writes that if uh, Christ were not bodily resurrected, mm-hmm. our faith is futile mm-hmm. still in our sins. Yes. So you would con- in the context of this book, yeah, it's great. Paul's just making a different argument for the sake of those online. Um, the question is quoting from first Corinthians 15. If Christ had not been raised then our faith is uh, futile or in vain, um, even worse, we're lying about God and telling lies about God. The argument that Paul's making there, and it'll become clear as we get clearer, of course, as we look at it, is that the the um, the historical fact, the uh, falsifiable fact of the resurrection of Christ, is the is sort of the rational linchpin of Christianity. Okay, so if you if you think of things kind of sophomorically that something would be falsifiable that is that something could be proven false seems to be a weakness but it's not so like if i okay we'll take a page out of like the atheist book so if i claim that god is a flying spaghetti monster up in space or whatever no one can disprove that it's not falsifiable so it's also not in a technical sense meaningful and many arguments in religion go this way. Like, well, I think God is this way. Well, I think God is that way. Well, we can't falsify either. So it's effectively meaningless. What the resurrection does is grounds the entire revelation of God in history and in fact, and in such a way that it's falsifiable. You want to disprove Christianity? It's very easy. Show us the bones of Jesus. Show us equal or greater evidence than we have for his resurrection, which spoiler alert, you won't find. Uh, In fact, as uh, John Warwick Montgomery, eminent scholar, theologian, and attorney (laughs) has argued, if you will, uh, if you reject the historical witness to the resurrection of Christ, we have more historical attestation for that fact than we do for any other fact so then he invites you if you want to reject christ then be consistent and reject everything else you know about all of history because there is less historical attestation to those events than there is to christ likewise then take it into the courtroom because the legal strength of the case of the resurrection of Christ talking about things like eyewitnesses and hostile witnesses and um, number of witnesses. There's uh, over 500 
many, uh, many of whom or a number of whom were hostile and then were converted by what they witnessed. So when you take the full weight of evidence, if you're going to say, no, no, I still think that then what you're doing is subverting the entire justice system and subverting any case that's be, that's been on the basis of less witness and less attestation. So you're subverting all these things. So then you need to be to be consistent in your rejection of of the evidence of Christ's resurrection. You need to be consistent that no one can ever convict anyone or exonerate anyone of any crime. No one's consistent in these things. You see the argument. Uh, so to just grab from another angle, one of the most important lines in all of the Apostles' Creed is that line uh, under Pontius Pilate. He wasn't crucified in the abstract. He wasn't raised spiritually. This isn't something in our imaginations. We're not making a claim like God is a purple spaghetti monster. Jesus is raised from the dead. There's no way to prove either. No, this happened in history. It is a fact. It is attested to, and the burden of proof is on the unbeliever to come up with equal or greater contrary witness, you see. So that's then why Paul says, look, it's falsifiable. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then everything we're preaching is a lie and futility. And But of course, Christ is raised from the dead. And the full burden of proof on the unbeliever then is to overturn all of this. And if you can't, you have to go to hell knowing you're a hypocrite. So maybe that does justice to it in short way as I can. Yeah. Yeah. So the bodily resurrection of Christ and, and our bodily resurrection, we're going to hit those in the latter chapters of First Corinthians. So here just important to recognize. Uh, I mean, here it is to recognize how important the body is. That's really the theme and thesis. Anything we want to touch on in this regard? Okay, so, and I know we covered this in brief last week, but I wanted to do it again with a little more depth and detail. So at verse 1 of chapter 7, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have, uh, the ESV says sexual relations with a woman. Um, it is rather aptisthai to touch or to fasten to a woman. Now, it's a subtle difference, but I think it's a really important difference. There's a Roman Catholic here. I'm showing my ecumenism. There's a Roman Catholic philosopher. I used to retire now, I think, but he was in Boston College, uh, Peter Kraft. If if you see any of it, like 90% of his stuff's great. I mean, even though he's a papist, don't listen to him when it comes to salvation <laughs> or Mary, <laughs> usual suspects. But where he's great, he's great on this point because he attacks it from a, a philosophical perspective. Uh, approach a categorical approach he's got i think you can even find a shorthand article by this title or blog post something like that um there's no such thing as sex so we have turned um if there's little kids ears around maybe you don't want the little kids ears around so give you a warning for that those of you guys online um that we've invented this thing called sex and we even use the language of have sex and from that categorical error has sprung all kinds of other errors. What you really have is man and woman. Sex isn't something you do. It's something you are. You are the male sex or the female sex. Then there are rightly ordered, here would be the word, aptesthai, rightly ordered touching, rightly ordered fastening to, and wrongly ordered. So the rightly ordered fastening to would be husband and wife. Everything else isn't sex. It's disordered fastening to. Now that might not strike you as all that important, but it absolutely is. It's a foundational shift and change from the world's morality, which the world wants to say there is this thing called sexual relations who says so. And then what, what governs the morality of said, in quotation, sexual relations is what? Consent. As long as you have two consenting adults, you can engage in all kinds of, quote unquote, sexual relations. Now, the consent is predicated upon sexual relations or this thing called sex. 
when in fact that's a nothing it's a category error from the start or to put it in theological terms it's a lie it's just a sophisticated lie it goes right over the heads of all of us and invades our language and thus then invades our thoughts Okay. So um, worth considering here that um, sexual relations in the abstract is really rather a, a fruit of our misunderstandings of these things. Um, you know, even if you think biblically, what's the language? It's to know, right? It's not to have sex with. It's to know. So the male sex knows the female sex or this individual male knows this individual female. And then we can talk about if that's a sinful knowing, an illicit knowing, or a uh, sinless uh, and good kind of knowing. But that's a much cleaner and clearer and biblical way to think. All right. So all that to say, don't really love sexual relations as a translation here. It is good for a man not to fasten to a woman. Notice, too, that it's the man doing the fastening. I mean, I, I don't want to launch off on this, but in Genesis, it's the it's not the man and the woman who leave the home and then fasten to each other. You can go reread this if you like, but it's uh, the man, it's the, the man who leaves his father's home and takes a wife and cleaves to her. So she goes from under the father's headship mm-hmm. to under now her husband's headship. There's no, there's no, the boy leaves the family, the girl leaves the family, they cleave to one another. That's not what the Bible says. That's what we all think it says. That's not what it says. And that, that gets us in a completely wrong frame about what's going on about virtually everything. So here you see that, um, it is not good or it is good for a man not to cleave to a woman. He's saying not to be married. Now, he's going to go on to explain when that's right and when that's not right, or when that's wise and when that's obviously not wise, to say the least. Okay, so it is good for a man not to cleave to or fasten to a woman, but because of, and we talked about this, uh, I think, last week, because of the temptation to sexual immorality. See, there it's just porneas. It's just the, the wrong use of one's body. Because of the temptation to sexual immorality or just because of sexual immorality. I don't even think temptation to. ESV is a little weak in this section. Temptation to isn't even there. Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And then the, the husband should give to his wife her, and a conjugal right is a weird like 20th century invention. It's the... uh Awful lane. So this comes, this is the same language set when we say uh, in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive. It's really, I, I mean, a more literalistic would be debts, ophilete and ophile mana, um, our debtors. So the language of debt or owing, um, it's the same language that's used here. Ophilene, a duty, uh, Apodito to fulfill, so to fulfill one's duty, and we talked about that last. That, so, how is that dismissed? That's dismissed because um, we think we've we've completely mistaken the sexual relationship in marriage as a matter of feelings, and most marriage counseling follows along these lines of like one of the two doesn't feel it. Well, why don't you feel it? Because the other one isn't doing enough X, Y, and Z for me. Well, wait a minute. I, there's at least two categorical errors here. It's not based upon your feelings. It's a duty. I don't feel like paying my taxes. It's a duty. <laughs> there's consequences if you don't. Your feelings are rendered completely null and void by the language of duty. Sorry to not be romantic. I mean, yeah, it's very unromantic of me, but you'll find that romantic ideas aren't in the Bible. Then you've got this language of, of duty and obligation unto one another. And then if it's a duty and obligation owed, 
completely out of place. And, and I'm sorry to say this is usually statistically how it, and anecdotally, of course, how it is. Uh, and I've seen this, of course, in what I mean by anecdotally is in my marriage counseling. It's most typically the wife who says, well, I don't want to do my duty within marriage. Well, why not? Well, because no one in here is named Ralph, are they? I'm just going to pick that out. Because good old, because good old Ralph doesn't vacuum enough. Well, that's an error. It's not contingent upon Ralph vacuuming or not. It's a contingent upon whether or not you said I do. And most marital counseling today will tell you, oh, well, Ralph, you better get to vacuuming. And then Susie, uh, then, then you can, uh, reciprocate it's completely wrong it's completely satanic and guess what it doesn't work because there's never enough vacuuming once he's doing the vacuuming it's onto the dishes once he's onto the dishes well you didn't do this we didn't do that we didn't do the other thing and then you just realize it's all what sin and it's just a refusal masquerading as well you've done me this injustice so you deserve what i'm giving you that's just all right. That's what I mean by it's all satanic. No, I, I, we could just as easily pick on males because they're equally in view here. Equally in view. So when males are like, you know, whatever our version is of a headache, uh, trying to watch ESPN here, the game's on. Uh, you know, maybe if you kept the house a little cleaner, maybe if you brought me a few more sandwiches. I, you know, I don't know what the male equivalent is, but that, that would be the same error. That'd be the same error. So an equal condemnation here. Um, marriage is first and foremost a matter of duty and contract. Oh, but that sounds so horrible. We should have it be all about romance and feelings. That's an American idea, isn't it? Uh, please do supply me with some proof text from the scriptures if you think it isn't. And then, and then let me just ask this. How's that working out for us? What's the divorce rate again? Maybe we want to try it God's way. I, I, just an idea. I mean, we could, we can continue our course of inventing our own theology of marriage and just inventing this stuff out of thin air and convincing ourselves that I don't know what it is. Nineteenth century romance and is uh, is somehow superior to God's word, or we can get back to the nitty gritty of God's word, crucify the squeamish flesh within us. And we can also um, gently, corporately, I mean, I, we, we are so blessed to have so many godly women around us, but they, they too, hearkening back, echoing back to our previous conversation, haven't been taught these things. They've been catechized by the world. They've been catechized by their friends. They've been catechized by their by fellow Christian women, Christian women who have been catechized and taught in their churches and in their pastors that... Uh, the set, the set of rules given in the Bible doesn't apply. So these are things we got to become aware of again as a church. Um, I mentioned last year, this is great. This would be fun for our, uh, well, I don't know if fun's the right word. It'd be wild anyway. Um, let, let me give you a, a quote from Luther. I referenced this last week. <clears throat> All right. He says, uh, this is in a sermon he preached in 1523. The third case for divorce, what would be the first? adultery the second would be abandonment it's kind of hard to abandon anyone in this day and age right as soon as you turn on your phone you're you haven't abandoned anyone anymore but um used to be that you could just get on a ship <laughs> all right those are the first two cases sorry the third case for divorce is that in which one of the parties deprives and avoids the other refusing to fulfill the conjugal duty or to live with the other person for example, one finds many a stubborn wife. I, apparently, this was a 16th century problem also. Like that, who will not give in and who cares not a whit whether her husband falls into the sin of unchastity 10 times over. And I, I've literally heard husbands report to me, and it's just such, it's heartbreaking. My wife told me to see to it myself. My wife told me pornography, go for it. My wife told me to go have an affair. My wife told me to go sleep with whoever you want to sleep with. That's, I mean, listen to this line again from Luther, who cares not a whit whether her husband falls into the sin of unchastity 10 times over. There, there's a woman who is effectively sentencing her. Uh, she doesn't care if her husband goes to hell. She doesn't care if her husband falls into mortal sin. 
and becomes food for the devil. Luther continues, here it is time for the husband to say, if you will not, another will. The maid will come if the wife will not. Have you heard anything so manly? <laughs> Only first the husband should admonish and warn his wife. How many times do you think? Two or three. Two or three times. And here's the practical application. Now, uh, please talk to me before you do this. <laughs> and let the situation be known to others so that her stubbornness becomes a matter of common knowledge and is rebuked before the congregation. So elsewhere, he says, tell, you, you go tell her relatives and you tell the church that this is what I'm putting up with. And if they can't shame her into doing her duty, um, then it goes to the congregation formally. Luther continues, if she still refuses, get rid of her. Take an Esther and let Vashti go, as King Asaris did, Esther 1. Now, if we had more time, we'd go, maybe next week we will, because it's so fun. Uh, Asaris, by the way, any, have any of you seen the movie 300 with the Spartans? King Leonidas, all the guys running around with their uh, spray-painted bodies, their spray-painted abs. At least that's what I tell myself. Uh, so so Ahusaris is, is Xerxes one from that movie who ends up beating Leonidas and the Spartans. He's in the Bible. He's in Esther. And we all thought just because it has a woman's name, it's not a cool book. It's great. It's amazing. And Esther shines as this quintessential godly woman. There are many godly women who just shine. And wherever we see women, insofar as they shine as godly women, we should give them thanks and praise. And we should hold them up because how rare are they? How rare is the woman? I mean, insofar as she is extricated from the feminism and spirit of our age, and even if that's insofar isn't all that far, we should give thanks and praise because that's a miracle. Um, and, and one who, a godly woman who is standing against uh, one of the great heresies of our age. Many such women in the scriptures, many such women in this congregation and in our lives. All right. He continues here. You should be guided by the words of St. Paul, first Corinthians seven. Verses four through five. The husband does not rule over his own body, but the wife does. Likewise, the wife does not rule over her own body, but the husband does. Do not deprive each other except by agreement, etc. Notice that St. Paul forbids either party to deprive the other. For by the marriage vow, each submits his body to the other in conjugal duty. By the very marriage vow. So it's a breaking of a vow. It's a it's an adult, it's an adulterous act because it's a breaking of the marital uh, marital vow. And that's why it's the third case for divorce. And by the way, the husband who divorces his woman is, is a Christian in good standing um, in this case. I, of course, the shoe on the other foot, too. Now, listen to what Luther says here, because it's going to blow your mind in a number of different ways. And I'm here for it. I first read this years ago, and it blew my mind. And I just didn't have the courage to, like, you know, tell people. St. Paul forbids either party to deprive the other, for by the marriage vow, each submits his body to the other in conjugal duty. When one resists the other and refuses the conjugal duty, she is robbing the other of the body she had bestowed upon him. This is really contrary to marriage and dissolves the marriage. For this reason, the civil government, can I repeat that? <clears throat> for this reason, the civil government, the state, must compel the wife or put her to death. Now, where does that come? Luther thinks that godly and pious rulers should put adulterers to death. And by the way, if you think this is just the idiosyncrasies of Luther, it's not. This is what the Western Church at the time of Luther thought, held, and taught. You can find this in, uh, we have three magisterial Lutherans, uh, and um, Luther, Chemnitz, and Gerhardt really the theologians that define the ethos and the mind of Lutheranism. I have found both Luther and Gerhardt, and I've got quotes here for you, saying these same things. C.F.W. Walther, in the 19th century, the founder of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, same things, and cites these men as authorities on the matter. Okay, so the civil government, Luther says, ought to, ought to enforce the death sentence for adultery, and likewise for uh, refusal to perform conjugal duties within marriage. 
That's what he says. So the civil government must compel the wife or put her to death. If the government fails to act, the husband must reason that his wife has been stolen away and slain by robbers. He must seek another. I mean, if the alternative is for him to burn with lust and end up in all manner of fornication and disaster for his soul, what, what's he supposed to do? Luther continues, and here we're at the end. We would certainly have to accept it if someone's life were taken from him. Why then should we not also accept it if a wife steals herself away from her husband or is stolen away by others? All right. Many such. Uh, by the way, um, similar se sentiment from Luther here in, uh, to their credit, CPH Pastoral Theology, Wolfer's Works. Um, you can find this and more. Uh, in here. So it's not like, it's not like this is, uh, completely in the dark. Um, we do, thanks be to God, have, um, some of this stuff coming to the light because it's all based here on what the Holy Spirit says through St. Paul in, uh, 1 Corinthians 7. I see we're a couple minutes over. So conveniently, I won't be able to take any time, any like questions or complaints. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but in all seriousness, I'll I'll hang out uh, and and we can chat. And those of you guys online, feel free to uh, drop me a phone call or see me on Sunday if you if you want to chat about something. Let's close with the Lord's prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, gentlemen, thanks for coming. Thank you guys online. God's peace to you all. Thanks, Pastor. Yep. Thanks, Pastor.